going to invite you to keep that passage open there with you. You might sort of find that helpful to, um, to follow along with. If you've not been with us sort of before this morning, if you're just visiting, then it's lovely to welcome you with us. Uh, really grateful you're, you're joining with us. Uh, what we've been doing over the past few weeks is thinking about living well. We've been thinking about what does it look like to, as, as we're gradually sort of edging our way sort of out of the pandemic and, and into sort of more kind of everyday life. What would it look like to not just come back to normal, but actually to seek to live well? And so this morning is all about one simple idea, really. I've called it Be Here Now. It's all about how we can be present to enjoy the moment that we're in. I think that's a huge problem for us, isn't it? You might think that enjoying the moment, being able to be present, not being overcome with worries about the past or anxieties for the future, perhaps, as it may be, you might think that that's easily overcome. Well, actually, you know, if everything around you is really successful and going well, and yet, actually, even for those who experience great moments of success, I'm not sure it proves so easy. Kate Winslet uh, talks about her experience of, of having been sort of shot to stardom from starring in the film Titanic, a film that won 11 Oscars and has become sort of something of a modern classic, isn't it? But it changed her life overnight. And so in a BAFTA sort of speech, she shared a bit about that. She says, it was a huge moment, of course, in my life. It was a big turning point moment, and my life did change really overnight. I remember one day being able to go and buy a newspaper and a pint of milk, no problem, and the next day, I actually couldn't get out of the house because of paparazzi. And that was a huge shock. Nothing really prepares you for that. No one really can tell you about what to expect because it's so sort of unknowable and so weird. And then listen to what she says here, the most striking thing perhaps. I can honestly say I wasn't able to even really enjoy the success of Titanic because it was so frantic. I'm not sure that it even changes that problem of how do we actually enjoy the moment that we're in, even if actually everything goes really well. So as we join Luke's gospel here in chapter 10, we need to know sort of roughly where we are. The section just before this story, you'll, you'll notice there if you have your Bible open in front of you, that Jesus has told the story of the Good Samaritan. And you might think the story of the Good Samaritan and the, this kind of interaction between Mary, Martha and Jesus seems to be kind of thrown together, cobbled together a little bit sort of hastily here. But Luke has a purpose here. In sharing the story of the Good Samaritan just before this, we see that love for God is displayed through service to others. Through this Good Samaritan who cares for someone who, in theory, at least in terms of the social expectations at the time, he should not be interested in at all. Love for God is displayed through service. But this story tells us a second thing, a connected thing, but a different thing, and that's that love for God is displayed through presence. And we see that through Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. So the point today is really simple. It's that you love God and you love people through your presence and through being present. So let's see firstly here that tale of two sisters. Uh, I wonder if you sort of experienced this uh, uh, yourself. I, I know for us as a family, maybe we're just uh, a bad family. 
Uh, but that is very possible. Uh, but through the course of lockdown and homeschooling, one of the problems with all of that is that, you know, we, we found that our, our two eldest boys who were schooling at the time are complete opposite personalities. Brought up in the same home, brought up with all this, hearing all the same sort of stuff, but complete different personalities. And it came to the fore over the course of trying to homeschool them. So, you know, we have one child who, not engaged with schoolwork, uh, will rush through it as quick as he can, say, oh, that's so easy, well, that's so boring, just to get it done so he can get back to his tablet. And then we have another son who, when we ask, can you just go and sit on that table over there, went and sat on the table. <laughs> So we have a huge difference between them of, of just personality and character. They just seem to be wired differently, yet they're brought up in the same place. And you'd think the same experiences might be the same. Well, that's what we see with these two sisters. And that's what this story is about. It's actually about two different personalities and how they relate to Jesus. Because, you know, right, there's an important caveat sort of to put in there isn't there that and I should say this sort of by way of disclaimer is that you know it, it could be possible for this story to be taught in such a way that you'd be left with the impression that that you know the story's a bit misogynistic right and and perhaps you, you could teach it in such a way in which it maybe dismisses one or both of the women in, in their responses here or perhaps you could end up saying that the behaviour of one sister is, is because, you know, that's, that's what women are like, you know, which would be wrong. You could engender a behaviour, which would be wrong. Or you could wind up using one or other as a stereotype, couldn't you? So to be clear, nothing of what I say is doing that. And in fact, actually, I don't think the story is looking at that at all. I think the story is looking at two different personalities and how they respond to Jesus. Happen to be two sisters in this case. But the context of the story is if you shoot your eyes just a little bit sort of uh, further up the page there, you'll see verses 23 to 24 here. And this is, I think, is an important sort of key to this story. Jesus, then turning to the disciples, he says privately to them, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear. And they did not hear it. This is the key to the story. That those who see, those who hear from Jesus are so fortunate, they should make the most of the opportunity. So look at verse 38 there as Jesus begins this, or we, we begin to hear of this encounter. Now as they went on their way, and I'll stop there. You might think that that's inconsequential, but there's something significant here. In fact, actually, in the original language, the Greek that it's come from, and then it's sort of translated to English, we lose some of the nuances and things. So what this is actually saying is, now in the proceeding of them, and what it's doing is, you might think this is really sort of pedantic now. What it's setting up is, this is a time period in which something is going to happen. Now in the proceeding of them. What it's setting up is that this journey is going to be the venue in which this story plays out here with Jesus. That might seem somewhat irrelevant, but there's something significant about it. Because for Jesus, so much of his ministry, if you'll look through the Gospels, you'll find occurs on the way. We can tend to think 
that everything really is about where you're going to and maybe where you've been before. And the journey is just the annoying bit to get from one place to another. It's the bit that you just have to do. But for Jesus, so much of his ministry happens in the seemingly, potentially, I suppose, mundane moments of everyday life. Most of it isn't in the temple. So, there's something significant there for you, for me, to not devalue or discount or dismiss your everyday life. Every time, every place, every moment actually can be a sacred moment on your journey with Christ. It can be a moment in which actually the transcendent, the godly, comes in to every day. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And they've entered a village called Bethany, which I think I've got a map hopefully there for you where so you can get a bit of an idea of where this is. Bethany it was just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, about three kilometers from Jerusalem. So we're not far away from Jerusalem. We're just sort of on the outskirts. And this is at the moment in Luke's gospel here where in some ways you think, you know, Jesus' attention has turned towards Jerusalem. He's making his way out towards there and with the inevitable uh, trial, arrest, death and resurrection that will come. And Bethany serves as something of a stop-off point for Jesus just outside of Jerusalem here. Again, you might think Jesus here on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to everything that's going to happen there, that it would be easy for Jesus to be preoccupied with that, really. And yet there's still plenty to be done and to happen here in Bethany. Martha welcomes Jesus in. And so you'd think at this point, quite reasonably, Martha must have a positive view of Jesus. Because she's welcoming him. She wants to cater for him and, and be hospitable to him. So she must have a positive view of him. And if anything, it sounds like she's probably going to be the heroine at this point. Here she is, graciously welcoming Jesus into her home. This is all really good. Martha welcomes Jesus into her house. She had a sister called Mary, verse 39 tells us, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And there's the contrast for us. One is is busy working and one is calmly listening. And in a way, actually, all of this is is very countercultural. One commentator, uh, Howard Marshall, puts this, the story is not meant to exalt the contemplative life above the life of action, but to indicate the proper way to serve Jesus. One serves him by listening to his word rather than providing excessively for his needs. For a Jewish audience, it would have Uh, it would be of great significance that a place was given to women by Jesus, not simply to do domestic duties in the church, but to listen and to learn. And so there's something significant in what Jesus is doing here, in that Mary's being welcomed in uh, to sit and to listen and to learn just as other men were. And it's worth saying that that's not a common practice and experience at the time. Okay, that's, that's just not how it would happen that men would be taught by men and the goal was that then men would would go home and and would then pass that on but Jesus does something significant here in breaking down some of those barriers in that actually Mary is sat at uh, his feet just like any other man and if this same story 
uh, this story, sorry, is the same as the one recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 12, of, of where Mary anoints uh, Jesus, then this is a deeply sort of public and extravagant and emotional sort of sort of moment that's that's happening here and it's and it's two way isn't it it's this intense moment of, of worship and discipleship that happens here and it's significant that again if if that's the case that jesus doesn't dismiss that or tell her not to do that that is is welcomed those who question it he corrects Perhaps we could do with being a little more emotional in our worship and response to Jesus too. But Martha, by contrast, isn't present, but frantic and frenetic and sort of pulled apart in different directions, really, by her own felt pressures. We're told here, verse 40, Martha was distracted. And the words there is literally peris power. It means to be pulled around, to be pulled in different directions, to be, another word for it would be to be conflicted. She's distracted with much serving. She's not present, but pulled around. And she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? And rather than listening to Jesus, here's the contrast that She's coming to Jesus to tell him, you ought to be saying what I think you should be saying to my sister. Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Why aren't you so frantic as me? You see, she's sort of already assumed that she's right, so he'll have to back her up. So it must be that you just don't care, you just don't get it. She can't conceive that she could be wrong. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? There's those two sisters contrasted, these two personalities contrasted. And then there's two points I think the story shows us about this in the next two verses. Firstly, there's an ungodly carefulness and a godly carelessness. This story warns us firstly of an unhealthy carefulness loading ourselves with cares that keep us from God, that keep us from enjoying the life God has given. You know, Jesus is a loving friend, but part of his love is seen in telling you things sometimes that you don't want to hear. And that's what we see here, isn't it? But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. You see a compassion and a care and a love in Jesus' response, even the way he repeats her name, Martha, Martha. Though he's going to say something that's going to be uncomfortable for her, there's comfort in it. It's full of comfort from him. He loves her. Martha, you are anxious and troubled by many things. Again, the word Jesus uses here, anxious, again, is divided, pulled apart, that... In fact, actually, sometimes it's used to describe the, the, the literal sort of description is going to pieces. You're anxious and troubled. 
where there is talks about and is used in other places. It's used in Acts to describe a riot. You're in uproar. You're troubled. Everything is uh, not quite right here by many things. You know, for Martha, I guess she feels that the problem is I've got too many things to do and not enough help from other people. And so the solution seems to be we'd be better if others were only more like me. So tell them off and get them to help me out. The interesting thing is, I don't know if you found this too, but for people like that who are loaded with those worries and those sort of pressures and expectations like that, I don't know if you found this too, but sometimes people like Martha don't actually like to accept help. Because in a way, they want to be the martyr. They don't want to leave the unrealistic expectations they've put on themselves to just realistic. They want to retain the unrealistic expectations and everyone else the sense of guilt that only they are dealing with it. For Jesus, his estimation of the problem is very different. Says your problem is that you're too concerned, perhaps with how others perceive you, rather than other people. You know, there's a subtle difference, isn't there, between loving people and loving the approval or respect or acclaim of people. Those are not the same things, right? To love people is a different thing to love what people might do for you. See, you show love for people by your presence. That is by being around them, by being with them, by being there for them, more than anything else. And you show your love for people by being present. That it's not that you're there, but actually completely distracted and not really there, you're really totally somewhere else. There's an example of this, the comedy series Parks and Recreations, uh, Ron Swanson, doesn't like people, he's really in a way in the worst job in the world for him in terms of dealing with people. And so he's mandated once a month to actually listen to people's workplace concerns. He says the human resources department requires that I be available once a month to discuss workplace disputes with my employees. The rules do not specify whether or not I'm allowed to listen to Willie Nelson on my headphones. And so what you realise is every month they have this wine and cheese club where all his other employees sit around and, you know, they get to just vent on whatever is going on whilst he sits there listening to Willie Nelson drinking whiskey and not really being there, but technically being there. You know, you show your love for people by presence, but also by being present. And here maybe is the slight problem for, for Martha you know, the interesting thing as well is, isn't it, that the many things here that Martha's worried about and that we are worried about so many times, the things that make us anxious are things that so often don't deserve that attention. Instead, the one thing that we should be concerned with, Jesus says here there is one thing to be concerned with here, is actually the problem of our sin before a holy God. Yet instead we find ourselves caught up and pulled apart in so many directions by 
so many other anxieties. But it's the problem of sin that really is the problem we ought to be concerned with. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. First John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Genesis 4 reminds us that sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you. You must rule over it. And Jesus teaches, Mark records it in his gospel, chapter 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles a person. It's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. That's a problem worth worrying about, isn't it? And yet, the hope is... The joy is that through Christ, the one thing you and I should be concerned with, should be worried about, should be anxious about, we no longer have to be. Because Christ saves us from sin. John chapter 3, 16 tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. He tells us in the beginning of Romans that in it, the gospel, it's good news about Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. He encourages us again in Colossians, you who were dead in trespasses and uncircumcision of flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt against us, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Again, Hebrews 10 encourages us, by a single offering, he's perfected for all time, not just past sins, but your present ones and your future ones too, sadly. By a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The one problem we ought to be concerned with that deserves our attention and worry and anxiety, we no longer have to, because Jesus has dealt with it. In a sense, we can say, the past is gone, and no longer really exists. The future hasn't come, and so it doesn't really exist yet. And that all that truly exists is the moment that you're in now. To quit worrying about the moments gone, or the moments not here yet, and missing the moment that's here now. We're warned of an ungodly carefulness, but secondly, we're encouraged to take up a godly carelessness. And that might sound strange, but it's this idea of enjoying and making the most of the moment that we're in now. There's a godly carelessness of not being so loaded with cares and concerns that you can't enjoy the moment you're in with God. Emily Dickinson, in a poem, every now and again, I like to give you a bit of culture so you think I'm, you know, not just full of TV references. Every now and again, I do read something. Uh, Emily Dickinson, a poem, uh, Forever is composed of nows. Forever is composed of nows. It is not a different time, except for infiniteness and latitude of home. From this, experienced here, remove the dates to these, let months dissolve in further months, and years, exhale in years, without debate or pause, 
or celebrated days, no different our years would be from Anno Domini's. Forever is composed of nouns. This story encourages us towards a godly carelessness that frees ourselves of cares that keep us from God, that keep us from enjoying the life he's given. One thing is necessary, Jesus says. And this contrasts with Martha being concerned, being troubled by many things. There's a deliberate contrast. There's one thing that's necessary. You were troubled by many things. On the face of it, it might have seemed that Mary was selfish and lazy in leaving her sister to host Jesus. But actually, Mary's realised that the most important thing is to be with Jesus. Other things can wait. There's a question of how we translate this. So if you're looking in a paper copy of your Bible right now, you might even have a footnote sort of about this. Uh, as to how they translate whether there's one thing or few things necessary. I don't think it is that Jesus is saying one thing is necessary here, but that few things are necessary. Sometimes it feels in the world that everything is the most important thing. And so Jesus is saying, few things are really that important. It's not that there's only one thing in the world important. There are many important things, but compared to the deluge of things the world tells you are important, few things are that important, really. The problem instead is learning again how to filter what is important and what isn't important. The priorities can sometimes be wrong, can't they? The priority here wasn't what you cook, Jesus. As if, if you'd not given him a good enough meal, he's going to get on whatever review site afterwards and post a terrible review about what you cooked him. You know, as if there's anything in his personality that would lead you to think that he'd be like that. The important thing wasn't what you cook. It wasn't how clean the house was. It's did you take the chance to listen to him? This is 23 and 24 before. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and didn't see it. And to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. Did you take the chance to listen? And so Jesus corrects Martha gently, doesn't he? Verse 42. Mary's chosen the good portion. And now, I've said to you before that actually I think the translation of one thing is necessary isn't very good because actually the word there actually means few, little, or small. Here it uses a different word for one that literally just means one. There are a few things that are really that important. But here there is one good portion. And that is to listen to Jesus. He is the one thing of real value. What is of real and life-giving value, the good portion, was to stop and to sit at Jesus' feet and to listen to him. So why should Mary miss out on this good portion? Because Martha's chosen otherwise. And so Jesus says, it's a portion that which 
which will not be taken away from her. Jesus won't give in to Martha's request, no matter what. Instead of Mary losing her good portion, Martha should lay down her busyness from a misaligned priorities and receive the portion, just as Mary has. The one thing that's really worth worrying about is this moment with God. It's true for them. And it's true for us too, isn't it? Why don't I pray for us? And then in a few moments, what we'll do is, is share communion together and make the most of this moment and ask that Jesus, through his spirit, be present with us as we celebrate all that he's done, as we look to him, and, and as we remember again our need and his provision. And as we symbolically take up of that and eat and drink and believe that he'll provide for all of our needs, our most deepest needs we have. Father God, I thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us. We, I know I am, so much like uh, Martha, uh, so much of the time, can find so much of my time wrapped up in different worries and anxieties of things gone, things not yet here, that I can do nothing about. Wrapped up in things often that, that they're not always as important as they seem in my, in my own heart. Finding it hard to get the perspective to know what you know really is the most important thing lord i th i think we probably all of us find ourselves much like martha well intentioned well intentioned but but sometimes misunderstanding the opportunity you're giving us in each moment just to be with you and to enjoy all that you have given to us so lord, i thank you for your grace lord i thank you that the one thing we should be worried about, we should be anxious by, we should be fearful of. For those of us in Christ, there is no need to be fearful. There is no condemnation for us. Our problem of sin is dealt with. If that's dealt with, then nothing else is really so important as it may seem. Lord, I pray you might just prepare our hearts as we come to this meal in a moment together that we would sense and experience your presence with us together as we look to you and as we worship by recognizing our need and receiving for our need in this meal.